This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, March 10th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. The winner-take-all nature of politics makes us coarse. Far from compelling us to cultivate tolerance for our fellows and their choices, we instead can begin to see some people not as those with whom we share humanity, but as enemies to be defeated or worse. And that's not a recipe for living in harmony. Alexander William Salter is an associate professor of economics at Texas Tech University. Aaron Ross Powell is the founder of Cato's Libertarianism.org project. We spoke last month. Alexander, why don't you, I'm just I'm going to take off whatever I'm about to say here, but give us the, the basic uh, idea that, in a sense, what politics does to us. Absolutely. I think that when we ask of politics more than it can properly deliver, it makes us cranky, suspicious, and all around worse citizens. We get this idea because we're told it through multiple outlets that government is just another word for the things that we do together. The only problem is it's just not true. There are multiple avenues for collective action in society, fraternal organizations, churches, universities, that sort of thing. Government is the only entity that can force people to act collectively even when they would not want to. And because we use violence to quash dissent through the state, we have to be very, very careful about what things we even want to do politically. Aaron, this is a longstanding point of yours. And if there's one point I can expect Aaron Powell to make at any given moment, it is that politics makes us worse. What is it about the state that uh, turns us into these uh, nasty monsters. Yeah, well, I think it's it's core to what Alexander just said, which is that the state is a mechanism for us to collectively decide and enforce decisions. But unlike other mechanisms we might have, you know, you can decide your friends all want to go out to a restaurant and you put it to a vote and you decide and then you have collective enforcement in the sense that like you choose the restaurant that everyone went to. But the difference with the government is its enforcement mechanism is force. It is the threat of force. It is if you don't do this, we will punish you. And in fact, if you don't, we carry through, we use violence against you. And I think the reason that that makes us worse, the reason that that leads to the bad results socially and um, and just individually is that it fundamentally changes the nature of our relationship to each other. So if I ask you, Caleb, or you, Alexander, to do something for me, you might say yes, and I would appreciate it, or you might say no, and I'm upset, and but ultimately, I just have to deal with being upset or maybe tell other people I got upset with you and that they shouldn't ask you to do something for them. But if it's through the state, if we vote to make you do something, then I get to use violence or have someone else use violence against you to enforce my will. And that is just a it is a fundamentally different way of relating to each other. And it's one that I think makes us view each other as as things to be used as opposed to autonomous individuals worthy of of our respect you know in the in the practical we're talking about this at a you know 30,000 foot level but at the ground level right now there are these massive fights over education where uh children are for the most part compelled to attend a school that um they are assigned and for the most part, uh, we have these fights over what kids are going to be taught in those schools. 
in a sense, it's force on top of force. That is one, you're compelled to go to school and then whoever wins the fight over curriculum wins that fight and that's it. Somebody's going to be pretty upset about it. I think that you hit the nail on the head. The problem is that we're grouping in so many people under social systems that necessarily promote one size fits all solutions and don't really allow anything for opt out. What we really want to do in a pluralistic society is figure out ways for different communities where we all disagree about what the most important things in life are to nonetheless live peaceably with each other. That's what I would contend liberalism is about at its core. So for something like education, if we can't agree over curricula, one of the things that we should be doing is pushing more for school choice. We should have greater choices over education. We should have education funding follow students so parents can pick the best things for their children to make sure that we're not coercing everybody into a system that's top down, one size fits all and doesn't fit the nuances of life. And I would say that's even that's not perfect from the the broader concerns perspective, because the other thing that we compel in education is funding, is we compel people who might not have kids, who might not be attending these schools, who might have the resources to have opted out of them to still pay for the schools teaching things that they disagree with. Um, and school choice would still have if it's, you know, it's funded by the government, it's funded by all of us. I think that's ultimately the the goal is to disengage that notion of forced support for things that we disagree with, that we find abhorrent, that we would rather not be paying for, um, because we all the the desire to support kids in their education is pretty strong among a lot of people. A lot of us would say, I am I am more than happy to give money to help kids get an education. The question is, how can we get to that that motive being the primary driver as opposed to this this imposition of force or the threat of force driving us into situations we don't want to be in? You know, re related to what you're, you're both are talking about, uh, James Otteson years ago gave a speech uh, for the Cato Institute, I believe, at one of our offsite events. I believe I used it as a Cato podcast. If not, it's on Cato Audio. Please go listen to it. It's a wonderful speech. And he really just sort of lays out the points in our lives when interacting with others when we have the power to say no and how important it is to have the power uh, to say no in all manner of situations. Uh, and uh, if you are denied the ability to say no, uh, quite often your compliance, uh, you know, such as it is, can be used for all manner of nefarious uh, ends that none of us individually or even in large groups uh, would approve of. I think that's correct. I think that that's a good way of putting it. One thing that you said that actually comports well with what Aaron just said is we usually use frequently, not always, but frequently we use instrumental arguments to make these points, the sense that, oh, if we don't rope everybody into this, we're not going to get it done because we have this free rider problem. And that's something that we can consider. But what I think that Aaron and others like uh, others in the libertarian movement would call into question is, what about the social problems and threats to social peace caused by forced riders? You're necessarily raising the stakes of politics when you incorporate these solutions and require everybody to get on board with a single program. If you want to know why we're at a uniquely polarized time, the first place to look is 
we're at a point in time in American political history where we're asking local, state, and even the national government to radically increase its footprint, which necessarily means, again, all those one-size-fits-all solutions, which, again, implies that the cost of losing are particularly high. That's not conducive to social peace. I think that's exactly right, that going back to the point I made about the the nature, what the state does, the nature of our relationships with each other. As I said before, the state says, the state is a way where it's saying, now it's okay for you to be the kind of person I can use violence against to get you to do what I want, and that that's a corrupting influence. But on the flip side of it, to go to what Alexander said, is we now, if we're in a situation where you, if if you get what you want as far as how your children are educated, I'm not going to get what I want because this one-size-fits-all solution is going to be forced upon both of us and I'm going to have to pay for it, then you are now someone who is in opposition to me. Like in a, in a situation of, of, say, educational choice, you and I could be neighbors and we could educate our kids differently and get along, but now you are the guy or one of the guys who is preventing me from educating my children the way that I want to. And so we've put this barrier, we've created this toxicity in that relationship unnecessarily. And, and I wonder what the what the implications are for how we imagine whole groups of people who just disagree with us on things when you place those barriers uh, in place. It's probably at least uh, psychologically beneficial to view those people as much worse than they are. I think that we're discovering the hard way that when we try and do things through public institutions, it's a great way of turning potential friends into actual enemies. And that's just not good for us living peacefully and productively with each other. The great thing about a liberal society in its classical sense is we don't have to agree on either the ultimate conception of the good, capital letters, or even minute details like how we want to school our children. The key is figuring out those social practices that allow us to take advantage of our differences when we can interact to mutual benefits versus not going to the mattresses when we disagree. Right now, what is there but going to the mattresses? The process doesn't allow any other option. That's exactly right. And the the problem is that this also creates a feedback loop because as the, the footprint of the state grows and so more of the decisions that we would make individually in our own lives, our ability to say self-author is constrained by or is compelled by the, the will of others, the more willing we are then to use these same tools against them, which means they're more willing to use those same tools against us. And you end up in this constant ratcheting up of of tensions and mutual dislike and an unwillingness to disarm. Because if I disarm, then all that that means is I'm even less likely to get the things that I want. Yet, yeah, what's the role of tolerance here? Because it seems that when we when we ask the state to engage in in all manner of interventions in our lives and and really in the lives of uh, other people, that our opportunity to cultivate compassion our opportunity to be tolerant and develop that, you know, that important character trait uh, is stunted. I agree, Caleb. I think that we don't think enough through the lens of tolerance when we're thinking about what sorts of things we want to do politically and what sorts of things we want to do. I won't say privately, because that again connotes this idea that there's this only uh, this, this dichotomous choice between the market and the state, when of course the relevant alternative 
is frequently the rich and variegated landscape of civil society. But the problem is that we don't think about these things in terms of tolerance. We don't think about these things in terms of the inherent dignity of the human person and the intendant right to say, I don't think that this solution is right for me, for my family and my circumstances. And I think that I'm going to voluntarily act collectively with others others in my community who think likewise to find solutions that work for us. Ultimately, you have to be willing to live and let live and understand that that means that you're not going to be able to get everything that you want done through through the institutions that you necessarily think are appropriate. And that's okay. That's what it means to live in a non-totalized society. That's what it means to recognize that human beings are ends in themselves and not means to the ends of your own convenience. One thing that many of the the great philosophical traditions looking at virtue seem to agree on is that virtue, whether that's compassion or humility or beneficence or all the other things that we would like to believe that we are ourselves and like to see more of in others are the product of habits, that you learn to be compassionate by behaving compassionately, by cultivating those habits of mind. And, and so one of the real things that worries me is that as we increase this sphere of politics in which we are at the very least discouraged from viewing others compassionately and more often incentivized to view others in a non-compassionate way, to set aside tolerance, to not adopt a perspective of humility and so on, that that's we're not really compartmentalizing creatures. And so the more we practice those bad habits in the political sphere, the more those become just who we are. We, we're inculcating vice into ourselves, which then makes the political sphere more vicious and more likely to grow. And the bigger it is, the more opportunities we have to practice the bad habits and the fewer we have to practice the good ones. Yeah, if we are uh, merely our collection of choices and some choices that are that develop virtue are not available to us um that can that seems like it could create some pretty bad mindsets within well, almost everyone we are what we repeatedly do that's the basic element in all of this and i think what's really great about some of your writings aaron especially your recent stuff is you're really calling uh, to our attention, a dimension of this, which is frequently neglected, especially the libertarians. When we talk about state action and the problems it poses, we talk about the rights of people who have their, uh, who have their dignity or other inherent properties of moral worth violated by public processes. And that's of course appropriate to point that out, but we focus much less on what we're doing to ourselves when we condone those actions or justify those actions. We don't frequently discuss the fact that doing these things actually does make us worse people. And that's an entire different dimension to the analysis of the virtue or vice associated with these things. Everything from grand political philosophy to what school are you going to send your kid to and what's going to be on the curriculum. So that definitely needs to be a part of the conversation. Yeah, that's an interesting and related to that, uh, at, you know, a point that, Aaron, that you've made for a long time is that we need to talk about the upside of freedom uh, more. And uh, on a selfish basis, being able to give generously to each other, to show people compassion, that can that makes you feel better. 
that makes you that can that can make you feel good, even especially most especially sometimes when it's very difficult to do. And uh, those are the kinds of uh, benefits to us psychically that we sort of uh, can be denied uh, with an oppressive state. And this is one of the reasons it's important for libertarians and others who share these kinds of concerns to essentially present the state warts and all and and to be very clear about what the actual nature is of this thing and what it means to use it because one of the the tricks the state plays on us is telling us that this is normal and good civics class is about celebrating this way of interacting with each other as opposed to seeing it as you know maybe a necessary tool but one that has these deleterious effects on us and and so i think one of the things that we can do is is try to make it clear to people that if you were to behave towards others outside of the state in the way that we do in politics. So if I were to say, I want you to fund this stadium, and if you don't, I'm going to steal money out of your wallet or beat you up if you don't give it. Or if you walked over to your neighbor's house and said, no, you have to educate your kids. I'm going to take your kids from you and force them to be. Most of us would be horrified by that behavior. And we wouldn't just be horrified in the the sense of like, that's wrong to do to others. But we would say like the kind of person who behaves that way on a regular basis is not the kind of person I want to be. It's not the kind of person I want my children to grow up to be like. We would see that. That's not a controversial claim, I don't believe. And so a real role that that this kind of analysis can have is to say, but then why, like, please notice, please notice that that's what you're doing in this other sphere of your life and that that there's not a clear reason why it's okay there. Alexander William Salter is an associate professor of economics at Texas Tech University. Aaron Ross Powell is the founder of Cato's Libertarianism.org project. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.